You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. Here's a little fact that you probably don't know, Martin. Mid, uh, mid last century in the 50s, the Californians landed in Hawaii and started uh, looking for new surf breaks. And they were the first ones to surf Makaha on the west side of Oahu before pop, you know, making the North Shore more popular. Why I make that point for you is, of course, you're in California. I am. I've not been on any waves. I um, flew over rather than touching down in Hawaii, but um, it's certainly nice to be in a place in a part of the world that's um, had a long tradition of breaking boundaries and finding new ways of doing things, because in our mission of changing higher education for good, I think there's lots that all, all of the world, and certainly for us in our current state in Australia, can learn from what I've been exposed to in recent times and got ahead from me here in California. And who have you got on the podcast today? Well, we've been um, we've been having some really good um, episodes out of Arizona State University. We made some contact with them from from Australia, and I'm really looking forward to getting down to Phoenix and talking directly with with Michael Crow and some of his colleagues later on um, this season. But today, I'm I'm in California talking to Betty Vanden Bosch, the chief content officer of Coursera. Betty's got a fascinating history. She Cut her academic teeth, as it were, in Case Western Reserve University's business school. She went on to become president of Kaplan University. She was involved in the Purdue acquisition of Kaplan to make Purdue online. But now she's been leading Coursera's content and awards strategy as it's migrated the pandemic and is coming out of the, the other side with a rapid form of growth and a really interesting proposition to the world's universities. It's a great episode and I'm really looking forward to sharing it. Let's jump straight into that just after the short message. While the global pandemic has forced the education sector to shift online, OES have been delivering high-quality online education services for over a decade. Having built thousands of online units and supported over 50,000 students, OES partners with universities across areas including learning design, learning analytics, simulations, student support, and more. Discover how OES can help support your institution's digital strategy Visit oes.edu.au. Today's guest on HEDEX is Betty Vanden Bosch, who's Chief Content Officer at Coursera, where she oversees the company's content and credential strategy and its partner relationships. And before joining Coursera, Betty was Chancellor of Purdue University Global, which is an institution resulting from Purdue University's 2018 acquisition of of Kaplan University. At Purdue, Betty oversaw more than 32,000 students, most of whom earned their degrees online. And before that, Betty held a number of leadership positions at Kaplan University and also served as Associate Dean and Associate Professor at Case Western Reserve University. Oh, that was a long introduction, Betty. You've done so many different things. It's a pleasure to have you with us and welcome to HEDEX. Thank you so much for having me, Martin. It's a pleasure for me as well. Thank you so much. And and Betty, um, from that introduction, I, I wonder if you can help us in just the start of the interview, interview give us a, a feeling of how did you personally find the transition that you've gone through in that illustrious career from being an academic and leader of teaching and learning in what, 
what what to me from a distance seems to be one of the best known campus-based universities in the US, to now leading strategy and innovation in content and awards for what also for me from this distance seems to be one of the, the world's leading providers of global online learning. How did you find that transition? Well, you know, it's a um, it's something I've thought about a great deal through the transition and subsequently. I was very happy as the chancellor of Purdue University Global. It's a great job. I, you know, we had this wonderful institution that was part of Purdue, and we were teaching adult learners in North America in ways that changed their lives absolutely changed their lives. And we got to see that, I, you know, I was able to preside over university graduations. I think I've probably done 20 of them, spectacular. We had a great faculty, we had a great mission. It was great, all great. And then I got a call from Coursera. And at first I rebuffed them, I said, I don't want this. But as I thought more about it, and as they kept calling, I thought about the, uh, the opportunity to have a bigger platform to help people around the globe obtain the education they need and deserve. You know, Coursera's mission is high quality education for everyone. And the idea of being able to help that mission was really, really compelling to me and something that I felt was important for me to participate in. Just going, going back to the early part of that transition you've described, you, you were president of Kaplan University when it was one of the really early innovators um, into online learning from when it was far from the established and dominant way ahead for tertiary study. What were those pioneering times like to be challenging the more conventional campus-based models of education? So the challenges related to convincing folks, accreditors, employers, even students, that this is a legitimate form of education. And in many ways, the learning is, is better for adults than alternatives. First of all, they can do it. You know, many adults are limited just because they can't get to the place. They've got kids, they've got challenges, they have things to do. That flexibility is really fundamental. But another thing that's really important about online learning, which of course came to the fore even more during the pandemic, but it was true before, is our relationships with work have changed over the last 20 years. Whereas most of us, most of the time now, do things with computers and online. When your learning is of the form that your ultimate work will be, you are really well prepared to do work in that way. So that's a, a second thing. The third thing that I think is really important to remember about online learning is online learning does not privilege the people who are the most extroverted. Classroom learning does privilege them. And I, you know, when I was a teacher, a full-time university professor, it was really hard not to just pay attention to the people who spoke the loudest. Online learning doesn't privilege them at all. And in fact, it gives people an opportunity to reflect before they respond. And that in and of itself strengthens the value of online learning. The last thing we had to get over is 
one related to, well, how do you know it's the student? How do you know they're not cheating? How do you know this? How do you know that? And working through that, I think really helped not just Kaplan and Purdue Global, but helped all of education do a much better job in the way that students are assessed. Because when you have authentic assessments, it doesn't, you know, you're not going to cheat because authentically you can't cheat. Well, it's obvious, but it sounds to me like you're describing some things that m many are still grappling with, with the um, yeah. more substantial move to online learning to this day. But um, let me just go back to that, that those Kaplan times as they transitioned into Purdue University Global then as part of this um, unfolding story. You, you were president of Kaplan when the acquisition to establish Purdue University Global took place and then became its inaugural chancellor. Um, um, you've already told us a little bit about how that happened, but maybe you've more to say on that. And particularly, what was the driving business case for both Kaplan and Purdue at the time and the driving business case for the new entity that was formed? Is that something you can describe to us? The reason Purdue was even remotely interested in Kaplan University was because in 2016, we did a, a reaffirmation of our accreditation with uh, the Higher Learning Commission in, in the United States. And we got, it wasn't perfect, but we got an open pathway for 10 years of accreditation. That had never happened to a for-profit online university before. We were the first where they said, yep, you, you know, there's nothing here that we have to complain about. Really, that may be my proudest moment because we had to convince people of all the things that we've just talked about. And we had to make sure that our teaching and learning was without, without criticism. The consequence of that is Purdue University saw that and said, okay, this is something, this is a university that has sufficient quality to be part of the Purdue family. Why it was a good idea for Purdue University is they recognized that their land grant mission, which is an American, which is American terminology for universities whose mission is to teach everyone, not just teach the smart kids, so to speak. They were no longer fulfilling their land grant mission. They, uh, there were too many people in Indiana where they're located and across the United States that couldn't access a Purdue education. So Purdue Global gave them the opportunity to meet their land grant mission. Also, they had uh, in their estimation fallen behind in online and this was a way to catch up quickly. So that's from the Purdue point of view. From uh, Kaplan's point of view, um, Kaplan recognized that for-profit education was in turmoil, not because we weren't a good university, it's just for-profit had a really lousy name. And so by working with Purdue, we managed to move away from that lousy name, didn't change a thing. The only person whose job changed was mine. Everybody else at Kaplan University stayed exactly the same. I got a new boss. That's really all that happened. And Kaplan changed its name to Purdue Global.
Well, and um, and there, there you were then establishing this hugely successful operation of a former private university with a large public university as a new venture. I think that that raised many people's eyes, and I'm sure a few of your network's eyes would have been raised when you made this transition. You when you eventually succumbed to the offers of Coursera at, at the most unusual of times, April 2020, as you've said. Um, I, I heard I heard Raghav Gupta, your vice president of APAC, um, describe some of Coursera's moves over recent times of migrating from its MOOC roots to now a much more expansive model of yeah. partnering with more than 200 leading universities, providing lifelong learning in both B2B and B2C models, um, a much more sophisticated model than Coursera's roots. So... As someone that's been in such a pivotal role in the company over this period of the pandemic, what has happened to the world of education through Coursera's eyes in the period that you've been there? So at one level, education will never be the same again because we've opened the Pandora's box of, you know, it's out, the, sorry, I shouldn't call it Pandora's box. The genie is out of the bottle is a better uh, analogy. People now recognize that they can learn online and many of them think, but I don't like it very much. And the reason for that is that we, um, many universities participate in remote learning rather than online learning. You know, putting up a camera is not what we believe online learning to be. So that's one thing, but, but what's really happened is the pandemic has opened up the opportunity for people to work from anywhere. So coupling the ability to work from anywhere with the ability to learn from everywhere, everywhere and anywhere gives folks the chance to really learn what they need to to move forward in their careers. One thing that um, demonstrates this very well is we have a series of certificates that we call introductory professional certificates. When you take one of these at the end of your study six months about, you are uh, you have developed the skills for an introductory position in a field. Most of the fields are digital, so you can become a help desk person, you can become a UX person, you can do basic data science, you could become a project manager, you can become a bookkeeper. Those are the kinds of positions that are now possible on Coursera. That coupled with, um, folks who need to have jobs and need to work from anywhere gives people many more opportunities to build their careers. And that's really where Coursera has headed. You now can build your career on Coursera, you get a job. What that does is it gives you, first off, the confidence as an adult that you can still learn. And you know, I'm not sure that I have that confidence. So our, our learners are really, really terrific. And then you start earning sufficient salary so that you have the money to continue your education. These introductory certificates then articulate into various degrees, both on and off our platform, so learners can continue on without having to relearn. And that's an illustration of what I think the biggest thing that has happened in the last few years is, and that is, that now folks recognize the value of stacking 
learning and not having to do the same thing over again. On Coursera, we think about that all the time. How can we maximize the trajectory of our learners and not make them do something twice? The second thing that's happened, of which this is an illustration, is learners can learn from industry those things that industry can teach the best and can learn from universities the things that universities do the best. And that marriage is one that's really, really challenging because, you know, universities sometimes, not always, but sometimes feel if I didn't teach it, how can you possibly know it? But because this is so skills-based, it really just sets the, sets the stage to the point that today we now have a, uh, an offering that we call the Career Academy, which enables universities to take this collection of, of programs, these introductory certificates, and offer them to their students who are graduating or near graduation so that if you have a degree in liberal studies, for example, or the liberal arts, you can then become a, a designer. You can become a project manager and get that first job. This to me is what's most exciting about what we've been working on over the last couple of years. Well, wow, sounds exciting stuff. And you, you've hinted at it a couple of times that um, Coursera has this lovely vision of as I understand it, but, but being seeing a world where anyone anywhere has the power to transform their life through learning. That's um, so, so that's a lofty goal, isn't it? And it's a lofty yeah. ambition. I, I'm, I'm used to universities seeking to raise their places in the university rankings by 50 <laughs> places or something like that. And um, you, you also have a, an impact report with the title Serving the World Through Learning. And you measure, I, I, I gather in that report, that your total impact is being serving 92 million learners through 200 university partners, more than 4,000 courses in close to 200 cu countries. But in, in, in this part of the world, in Australia, we're used to having universities serving 50,000 or so students. A few of them are a little bit bigger than that. They they have significant domestic markets. They might have 30% or more of largely onshore international students. And so there's a completely different reach and scale in what you're doing in Coursera from a, a typical Australian university. How important is that scale and global reach to what you're trying to do? I, I believe that it's absolutely fundamental. Coursera is a platform, and as I've already described, we bring universities and industry partners together on the platform to help learners move forward. For our university partners particularly, they ought to be most interested by Coursera because of three things, access, stackability, which I've already talked about, and scale as long as those three things head towards a career and a job. So the idea is that our platform enables access. It's less expensive because we, you know, we really work to cut the costs for our university partners. So it's less expensive for them and tuition is lower as a consequence. Because we have 102 million, now we have 102 million learners on the platform, those are the folks that come into degrees. So we don't have these uh, exorbitant 
marketing costs to pull in that next student. The second thing that's really important is that we work with our university partners to get comfortable with scale. If you only want to teach 30 or 40 students, Coursera is probably not for you. But if you are interested in teaching university students across the globe, we have, for example, um, the MBA with the University of Illinois. No, that has students from 92 countries. We also have an MBA from Macquarie, which is completely different and also serves learners from around the globe. Neither of those institutions would have had the opportunity to spread their wings that far without the, the platform and the 102 million learners that Coursera offers. Well, that must be significant to your growth. I had no idea you'd gone from 92 million to 102 million in the time that I'd researched this interview. Um, <laughs> But, but as I understand it from that research, you're also working in commercial relationships with global, global business and government clients in different forms of B2B relationships with them. I wonder if you can help, help me and our listeners understand what, what you anticipate being the balance of your continuous striving for scale and growth in the future for global learners between those you will serve through university partners compared to those you may serve directly as Coursera? What we do with our, what we call our enterprise customers, which consist of companies, universities, and governments, is we offer them the Coursera platform, and then they curate that platform for their specific needs. They will come to Coursera and curate a series of courses. Some of them will come from our industry partners. Some of them will come from our university partners and put those courses together on the Coursera platform for the benefit of their uh, employees. That's one example. Coursera for Campus, which is universities, are universities who want to make use of the coursework that's on Coursera to augment their degrees. So for example, um, uh, the, the content that's on Coursera's platform from Macquarie may be used by universities in India because the folks in India don't have sufficient faculty resources to provide that cutting edge learning. So the university contracts with Coursera and uses Coursera's content from Macquarie or from Google or from IBM to create ancillary materials for its courses. Sometimes it's used to turn a regular program into an honors program. Sometimes it's used like a textbook. Coursera becomes the textbook. The third instance is Coursera for government. And Coursera for government is mostly with workforce development. For example, um, the country of Barbados decided that it wanted to upskill, it wanted to conduct a digital transformation, and it made Coursera content, not all of it, but Coursera content available to all of its citizens. Sounds like, um, as, as you described that in more detail then, that there's not so much a threat to universities by this rapid growth and emergence of new ways of doing business by Coursera, but, but an opportunity to engage in new ways. And 
I wonder if um, in, in reflecting on whether my comment there is accurate or not, for someone that's had such senior experience in both traditional campus-based universities and is now leading one of the most significant disruptors in the sector, but where's all this heading and, and what's the most likely end game for the global provision of higher education and lifelong learning by, I don't know, by 2030? What's the world going to look like? So my, uh, my belief is that it will evolve, but it will also stay the same. There will be much more hybrid education. The idea that we need a sage on the stage is gone. However, there still is a real benefit to face-to-face, in-person interactions. Certainly the pandemic has taught us that we are human beings and we yearn to have connection. So I believe that the hybrid environment is the one that will prevail. That's going to be the case in the world of work and it's going to be the case in education. Many say the degree is going away. I don't believe the degree is going away, but I do believe that those institutions that are willing to stack learning into the degree and into the provision of a credential will do better with learners because learners want things in small bites and they also want a bit more control over their education. Those two things coupled with the the move to remote work are the things that are going to affect the way that learning happens. When people work remotely, sometimes their company is going to support them in their education, sometimes they're going to do it themselves, but there's going to be more flexibility. And that's where education is is heading. What a crystal clear and razor sharp picture of of what a, for many is quite an unpredictable future. And and guided by that that clarity of of what you expect to see happen, I'm sure you're bringing that to bear on, on the development of Coursera. I wonder if you can imagine that if you were back as the president of Case Western University at the moment, or try to imagine yourself as a vice chancellor of one of the large Australian universities. I know you know Macquarie well, I don't know how well you know the others. If, If you were in one of those roles rather than working in Coursera now, what would your strategy be to best prepare your university for that end game? So, um, when I was at Case Western University, Case Western Reserve University, I did make the executive MBA program a hybrid program. That was back in 2003, 2004. I have long believed that we have to use the time of our students as flexibly and efficiently as possible. So I would give exactly that advice to a chancellor. If I were the chancellor of a major Australian university, I would think about how I can increase the flexibility and the the control that we can give to our learners so that they can create their own futures. I also believe that that involves online learning. It involves enabling people from far and wide to learn together. And it it doesn't privilege those who have more capability to come on campus versus those who have to stay away. 
Now, there is still a role for a traditional university education for many, not all, but many 18 to 22 year olds. The problem with that is if those 18 to 22 year olds don't have the resources to move to a university, we're developing a, a two-tiered society. And all of our university chancellors need to recognize that they are part of the solution to prevent that have and have not in society. And we all have to work together so that anyone, anywhere has the opportunity to change their life through learning. That's a, that's a very clear message to the world's presidents and chancellors and vice chancellors, as we call them in, in Australia, of, in leading institutions. And I guess the clarity of that message is implies that not enough leaders are currently are currently embracing change and transforming the models and seeking growth and opening up as, as much as they might. If, if, if that is the case, why aren't, what, what stops them? So it's, I believe that, you know, universities are federations, they're not hierarchies. And part of the challenge is that the, um, the governance of universities is shared and everybody has their own peace that they want to develop and protect. So the challenge that a chancellor has is he's got all these different constituents or vice chancellor, that she has all these different constituents who are trying to protect their own little peace. And the challenge is to figure out how to help them feel comfortable recognizing that protectionism never works long-term. I believe that many vice chancellors do have a vision. They have a challenge helping their constituents see the vision that they see. Well, that's a very, um, that's a very clear articulation of the difficulty of leadership in any times and the particularly in enhanced difficulties of leadership in these times. I'm going to bring this fascinating interview towards a conclusion now, Betty. You've given us so much rich insights and information here and um you, you you've had time of being a a president and a chancellor of a university and one that's gone through a transition into a more online world but you're now in a quite different sort of organization and a different sort of role are, are you enjoying from that just over two years working through a pandemic are you enjoying being the chief content officer at one of the largest and most innovative disruptors of global higher education at this point in time? I am having a blast. I love every minute. I love having the opportunity to talk with our university partners about what's possible. I love working with our industry partners to help them develop the content that they need to build skills and then marrying those two together. We're doing important work at Coursera, and I feel so lucky to be a part of it. I feel incredibly lucky to have the chance to talk to you about it. I think our listeners are so lucky to have, as I've said a number of times in commenting on your answers, the clarity and the um, and the and the real explicit mm -hmm. nature of, of of your insights. So, for being mm -hmm. such a, a brilliant guest with us on our Head HeadX podcast, Betty, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about what I love talking about. 
Wow, Martin. So tell me, how do traditional universities feel about Coursera? Well, I think um, they've, they've migrated their position with regard to it and other um, former, you know, we'd call Coursera one of the pioneering MOOCs in what we had understood them to be, but that's that's now a misrepresentation of what they're bringing to the marketplace and where they see the future going. I think they've they've gone from a position of being mildly interested but largely detached from to a not being able to not take notice of, of, of Coursera and some of the other emerging OPMs out of the MOOC world that, that we're seeing this as a great example of. Because I mean, I, I think, you know, to, to go right to the punchline of this episode from my point of view, there's, um, there's both threats and opportunities for universities right now in major disruptive elements and, and ventures like the Coursera business model, depending upon how you respond to it. Ignore it and, and pretend it's going to go away and it will be a threat. Get on board with it, embrace it, partner with it and find your, your niche with where it's heading. And there are enormous opportunities big decision point for every university. Don't ignore it. Recognize it as the reality. It seems as well that they they don't have any sort of um, boundaries or apron ties to a legacy system. Their operating rhythm and way of being is entrepreneurial from the get-go, which is somewhat counter to traditional universities' perspective and some of their conditioning. So they're having to actively shift away from some of the culture that's prohibited their development. And whereas Coursera looks to the future time and time again, from my background with, you know, big grocery and big banking and insurance, we, we've had to spend a lot of time with traditional players doing visioning pieces where we say, look, here is, we paint the picture. And in fact, our organization actually films the future for them. Things like drone delivery and automation and AI and AR and how they come to life for customers so that the organization can then stand up the strategy and the functional elements to ensure they're ready for that. And so that's only really valuable for those organizations that are somewhat caught in a in a cycle or a cyclic pattern around the way that they operate. And so breaking that mold for them and portraying the future, whether it be five years, seven years or 10 years, and then helping them move towards that with the right partners has always been um, the, you know, the, the thing that works. Well, I think that that's a really good analysis of why Coursera have got so much opportunity and one of the major barriers that our universities have. I mean, the concept of legacy, if you've got a reputation built over 200 years in Australian universities' cases at the, at the maximum extent, not quite that much, and 1,000 years in Europe, you've, you've got expectations of your brand and of your reputation and of what you offer that's deep-seated and long-standing together with a whole bunch of operating procedures, campuses, alumni relationships, partners, physical infrastructure, physical systems. These things are, are difficult to innovate from when so much of what you've done up until now is to be building the continuity and the solidity of that reputation. I, I, I think universities have to think really hard about whether their legacies, which they've always prided themselves to be their greatest asset, might actually be their biggest liability in the in the period ahead. I don't think leaders either typically like to fess up to not being entirely across what the future looks like and what they need to do. It's a very uncomfortable position that you're in a, le- a leadership position of authority where you have to have a incumbent level of knowledge and also acumen around what's coming. So we're hearing more and more, and you and I have spoken about this off podcast, but we're hearing more and more about universities wanting 
uh, a soft introduction or some sort of commentary or vetting of particular partners, be it tech or ed tech, so that they can become accustomed to them and familiar with them without it being a cold experience. And I feel like this is probably fits into that position as well somehow. Well, I think so. I mean, you, you, you know, I spent 38 years working in universities in three continents around the world, seven different universities. The number of different gatherings of academics I've been to of different persuasions, whether they're discipline-based or leadership groups or groups of deans or genres of university in Australia, the, we, we, people in universities are very familiar with turning up and sharing experiences and networking with people like them. Um, it's what they're used to. The world of ed tech is is quite different. I mean, it's it has a mystique all of its own. A, an academic stumbling into and stumbling across a, a, a major gathering of ed tech entrepreneurs and, and and sellers and product and service providers would feel as out of home as um, as a as a big tech person would be stumbling across an academic conference and that hybrid of those ways of thinking so that both can learn from each other we talked about this um, with ASU with them creating their own version of this with their ASU and GSV summit and in, in Australia in particular I mean for me here in California Everything seems to be a combination and hybrid of, of tech and universities. Mm. But for us in Australia, back home where you are at the moment, Carl, I don't think we have enough access to some of those things. So what I'm seeing here and what you and I have talked about off, off podcast is a great opportunity for HEDEX to create that for the benefit of advancing and changing higher education for good from Australia in the dynamic world that's opening up in front of us. It seems to make sense. From what I understand, I know you, you've lived and breathed this for decades, but the actual uh, infrastructure and the architecture around the way the organization is constructed, so from the vice chancellor through the executive into the organization, there's not necessarily, I'm not, it's not even bandwidth, but there's not really a position that is responsible for that sort of interface. Would I be right in suggesting that? Absolutely, you're right. I mean, um, Betty's title, just as one thing, is so uh, is so uh, is so revealing. She's the chief content officer. She used to be a professor and an executive dean and a president of a university, vice chancellor, as we call them. Now she's got the title of chief content officer. I, the other of our guests on 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 HeadX, we've had a chief revenue officer of Go One. Um, I'm, I'm, that's not to say that these radical new business-like and tech titles are what universities have, but we're still substantially, um, you know, rooted in the in the in the history of deputy vice chancellors for academic and for research and for directors of graduate schools and 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 all of those things are important for what we do do and have done, but they're not really the best portfolios to manage where we might be going and what we need to do so th those executive roles are a barrier the, the the other thing that I think is so revealing on what Betty said and in at the end of her interview there when I asked her why aren't more vice chancellors being more radical and embracing this future she had that really interesting perspective that they as individuals those, those um he, th those those people have have the vision to make, bring about change, but their governance environment is complex. It's not only these legacy titles of deputy vice chancellors of this and professor of that that have a very interesting and interested stake. It's the governing councils of universities. 
are really big barriers in many cases on more innovative and entrepreneurial leadership by the, the CEO or the vice chancellor. And I think there's a big opportunity for us in maybe some of our future guests and, and where we're going in some of our next stage thinking and activities on HEDEX to really be ch- challenging that governance scenario as well. I liked Betty saying that she sees a future for universities in 2030. And I think we also agree that there's enormous amounts of value in the existing model that just needs to evolve and iteratively develop rather than it's an either or. I think if we can continue with the you know the deep value that exists across the university sector and then couple that with a different way of operating with the consumer, um, that has to be the way of the future. Well, I think so too. I mean, you know, there were some some reports coming out from some sources about a year ago now saying we'd reached peak higher education that the campus was dead. I, I remember reflecting at the time, I don't think that's right. I don't think anyone mm. thinks that's right. No. I, I, I don't think we've reached peak higher education. I just think the growing demand for lifelong learning is going to need d- different responses, and it won't all be face-to-face on campuses. There will still be campuses, but the new hybrid learning world is going to need, it's going to, need to respond to a new hybrid working world. And death of universities and the death of the degree is often often foreshadowed but probably inaccurately portrayed but a different way of packaging knowledge from multiple partnerships in complex arrangements using advanced technology for a more complicated and nuanced global need absolutely that's the way of the future the reason for that, if you look at when I started my career 25 or 30 years ago, you went to university, you then went into a career, and that was essentially what you expected to be doing for the next 15 or 20 years. That is really not the case now. If, if a leader stays in a particular role for more than two years, they are not, it's not frowned upon, but they seem to have missed the boat or have stopped, not got off the right station yet. Look, I see parallels from a world that I know that you've been very involved in, which is the whole real estate market. We used to, you know, we used to get the newspapers and the classified sections and then work with the the um, the real estate agent on the high street or the local shopping centre to serve local needs. And technology came along and radically changed that, didn't it? And I know you've been very involved in that. And I don't know if you see the parallels with what we're going through in education. Yeah, I don't think it's it's explicitly or particularly uh, identical, but certainly realestate.com.au coming in uh, and the REA group and domain for a certain amount of time coming in and finding better ways of helping people buy property or understand property, find an agent. Um, it, look, it's only accelerated everything for everyone. So the relationships aren't necessarily the glove in hand sort of relationships that you do find and you, I hope that we do find from universities and ed tech and tech providers. Um, it can be quite tense at times, but there's an underlying uh, assumption and also understanding that this is the best way of going to market, that we have scale, we have reach, we have the ability to inform as many people as we need to about a particular property or whatever whatever the case may be. And look, the same goes with carsales.com.au, with seek.com.au, um, MYB to some extent. You know, there's the service offering is only accelerated through the right partners and the best organisations find the right partners. Well, there you go. I think the challenge for our universities is not to try and beat the ed tech world or ignore it, but to find the most suitable partners for them and where they're going, what their purpose is, what their state of advancement is. 
And if we can help them in that journey and, and curate and, and concierge that process of matchmaking between these two sectors, they're going to be so important in working together if we're going to change higher education for good. It's, um, it's a really good in, in, uh, opportunity for HEDEX and a really good opportunity for the Australian higher education sector to move forward, I think. Couldn't agree more. And that's all we have time for on this episode of HEDEX. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Carl. 